Praise God for his goodness. It's a wonderful study to meditate on the various names of God. You can maybe uh, flick back in your mind to that uh, video about dads, and you can apply a lot of that to God because we get our good characteristics from the Lord. But encourager, protector, provider, carer, who has God been to you? What's his name to you most recently? Reflect on that. Uh, A very big thank you to our live praise band today. They do a great job when they're pre-recorded, but it's so much nicer just having them live too. And uh, they have names. Yes. Thanks, uh, Lynn Bowman on piano, Mandy Upshaw on flute, Kathy Cullen on vocals, and Calvin McNeil on keyboard and vocals. So this did a wonderful job of leading us. Today's message is owning up to a name. First section, our identity crisis and the dad dearth. Dearth means lack of. Who am I? That's one of the most important questions in life, the question of identity. It's natural to look to others to help us understand who we are. We're constantly alert for clues as to what makes us different, how we stand out from the rest as unique. The period of isolation during the pandemic has probably accentuated this need to come to know who we are as connection with others has been so limited. In a recent Carrie Newhoff podcast, author and pastor Tim Keller was emphasizing the church needs to be prepared to help people with identity issues from the notes. They need to have a clear answer for these identity heresies, Keller says, the therapeutic individualistic misplacements where your identity is found in chasing down whatever your deepest desires are, the progressive victim misplacement where your identity is found in whatever minority group you're in and how you're being oppressed, end quote. Our parents can play a big role in helping us find our identity. For one thing, they give us a name. Sometimes we receive other names, such as nicknames from our buddies, but our name is a significant part of our identity. Often family members use other labels or adjectives to refer to us or describe us, some complimentary, such as speedy, others not, such as slowpoke. Dads can have a role in forming a child's identity that is different from that of a mother. Psychiatrist Margaret Mahler developed the separation individuation theory of identity formation. She described the symbiotic phase up to five months of age in which the child was aware of their mother but lacks a sense of individuality. When the child begins to crawl and then walk, the infant begins to explore actively and becomes more distant from the mother. By 18 months, they're aware of themselves as separate and distinct from the mother. And by two to three years, they have a strong sense of themselves as separate persons. We had this little phrase, terrible twos, to describe that phase. What about dad's involvement? Researchers have found that the father's support is valuable for the infant's long-term identity development. According to Winnicott, one author, the the father's role with the newborn is protecting the mother-child relationship. A strong relationship between the father and mother provides security and safety for the infant. 
According to attachment theory, a secure relationship is essential to healthy development. The father functions as an important figure that can assist the child in separating from the mother and provide a bridge into the world. One way the father can do this is by spending time with the infant away from the mother. An infant who lacks the assistance of a third figure may struggle to emerge from the maternal relationship. Unfortunately, too many homes in our culture lack a father's presence. The National Fatherhood Initiative points out the following based on United States statistics. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 19.5 million children, more than one in four, live without a father in the home. Children who live with their dads do better in school. Adolescent teen boys who live with their dads are less likely to carry guns and deal drugs. Children living without their father in the home are more likely to live in poverty, a 47% rate, which is over four times as much as those in homes with married couples. Daughters are less likely to engage in risky sexual behavior when they have consistent contact and a sense of closeness with their dads. Men with absent fathers are more likely to become absent fathers and women with absent fathers are more likely to have children with absent fathers. You can see more stats and particulars at fatherhood.org. Sometimes we dads fall guilty to the charge of being absent even when we're physically present. A study was done to determine the amount of interaction between fathers and their small children. First, the fathers were asked to estimate the amount of time they spent each day with the child. Average answer was about 15 to 20 minutes. Next, microphones were attached to the father so that each interaction could be recorded. The results of this study were shocking. The average amount of time spent by these middle-class fathers with their small children was 37 seconds per day. Not 15 to 20 minutes, 37 seconds. Their direct interaction was limited to 2.7 encounters daily, lasting 10 to 15 seconds each. Our fathers play a significant and valuable role in helping us know who we are, in naming us, helping us become individuated. Our parents are our originators, so they have a special place, a right to assist in our identification. When he's talking about praying in Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul, back one slide here, the Apostle Paul uses an interesting phrase to describe our Heavenly Father. Ephesians 3.14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. God is the creator of all, so our being derives from him. For those who trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, God's Holy Spirit has given us birth again from above, twice born, to become God's own children in a spiritual sense. Fundamentally, we need to be learning our identity, who we are, 
from him who made us. In today's story from the book of Acts, we see Peter becoming individuated, owning the name the Lord has given him, as Peter acknowledges the name of the one and only Savior. Next section, from Simon to Cephas. Simon Peter was one of Jesus' disciples from the very start. His brother Andrew heard John the Baptist point out Jesus as the Lamb of God and spent the day with him. Then, John 1.41, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which in translated is Peter. Both Simon and Cephas in the original Greek mean rock. But Peter didn't become rock solid in his devotion to Christ right away. Yes, there was a high point in Matthew 16 when Jesus queried the disciples as to his own identity. Uh, verses 15 to 18. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Hmm. Simon's believing declaration of confidence in Christ makes him a rock. And God would use Peter at Pentecost to preach and convince many to follow the risen Lord. Hell won't overcome those whose identity is established by Christ. But if you know the story of Peter, you also know he was the one who failed to stand up for Jesus when real testing came. Like the other disciples, Peter ran for his life when Jesus was arrested in the garden. Jesus commanded them not to fight with a sword. Then while trying to get close to the trial proceedings, Peter denied three times he even knew Jesus. Remember when they were introduced, Jesus looked at Simon. Luke uses the same Greek word right after Peter denies his master, 2261. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. At the Last Supper, Peter had boasted that even if all others fell away, he, Peter, would not. Peter had insisted emphatically, Mark 14, 31, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. But his words turned out to be so much hot air. He turned out to be a waffle rather than a rock. Now something very significant happens in John 21. It's after the resurrection, Jesus has prepared a breakfast on shore for the disciples who were out fishing. After breakfast, he takes Peter aside and three times with relentless repetition asks Peter, do you truly love me more than these? And Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter is hurt by the obvious repetition and parallelism to his own denials. But he answers affirmatively, upon which Jesus recommissions him. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. 
Christ reaffirms his call to Peter, this waffler who is in process of being chiseled into a rock to follow him. So Jesus does not just toss a nickname Peter's way and then stand aloof. He interacts with him, shapes him, very intentionally draws him aside one-on-one to rub off on him, life on life. That's part of formation and discipleship, even for one who has failed him at such a crucial moment. Such grace, such love and commitment to one others might flee from as a flake. Exception, by what name? Now, by the time we come to Acts 4, Peter has been an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. He ran with John to verify Mary Magdalene's account of the empty tomb with his own eyes. Jesus seems to have appeared to Peter privately based on Paul's account in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, and the disciples replying to those coming from the road to Emmaus in Luke 25, 34. There's been the breakfast on the beach episode we just talked about, and the ascension, not to mention other encounters which others saw as well. Peter knows what his eyes have beheld. There's no denying it now. In Acts 3, Peter helped a man who'd been lame over 40 years to stand up and walk. Now he's hauled up before the Sanhedrin who are having a formal inquiry. It's an impressive court. The Sanhedrin was made up of 24 priests, 24 elders, and 22 scribes, or teachers of the law. That's a total of 70 officials. These were the very authorities who initiated the proceedings that resulted in Jesus' death. Even Pilate, the Roman governor, caved in to the pressure when they started inciting a mob to demand Jesus' crucifixion. Wouldn't you be intimidated what they might do to you? Acts 4, 7. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? By what name? What authority? Other Jewish magicians used incantations to work wonders. What hidden power might you be invoking? Peter is not cowed by their intimidation. I imagine him looking around at them and stretching up to his full stature. Luke, the author, notes Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 8a, before speaking to them. This was the moment Jesus had been preparing them for back in Matthew 10, 19, saying, but when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That promise is for all of Jesus' followers, not just the first disciples. Can you trust him to give you what to say when you are questioned? Now comes the moment God has been preparing Peter for all along. No waffling this time. He's standing on the rock. First, note how Peter puts the ludicrousness of the official inquiry in perspective. Acts 4, 8, and 9. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed. As in, 
Is this really the sort of crime that should occupy a court's time and resources when a lame man can walk again? What kind of crime is that? If that's all that's the matter, what are the hidden motives in your putting us on trial? Don't you have more worthwhile matters to prosecute than an undebatably good deed? Then, in a sudden stroke of genius, or rather divine inspiration, the accused becomes the prosecutor. Those holding court suddenly find themselves put on trial and found guilty. Verse 10. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. The name at issue is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They ought to know him. He's the very one they executed scarcely two months previously. Whom you crucified. There it is, the charge against them. The you is emphatic in the original grammar. Robertson's word pictures comments, too good a chance to miss. So Peter boldly charges the Sanhedrin with responsibility for the death of Jesus. What guts to pin the very authorities who put you on trial. Yet it's not just Peter exposing their true colors whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. It's not Peter's word against theirs. God proved Jesus to be Messiah by the resurrection, Peter and many others, over 500 at one time, according to Paul's account in 1 Corinthians 15. Many others can attest to with their own eyes. Note the shift here. Peter is not on the hot seat. It's what God has been doing. Peter is just God's spokesperson, a mere witness to what the Lord has done. The Sanhedrin could not push Peter's buttons on this because it wasn't really about him or John at all. God was on the hot seat and had turned the tables, announcing the charges against the Sanhedrin for crucifying an innocent man. In fact, the Son of God sent to save the nation. Now, Peter calls an invisible attester to the witness stand, Holy Scripture. Verse 11, he is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Now, mind you, Peter gets no credit for originality here. Jesus had applied the very same scripture, Isaiah 28:16, to himself back in Matthew 21, in the hearing of many of the same chief priests and Pharisees. Its truth had come back to haunt them. Jesus had added as a warning, Matthew 21, 44, he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Peter's name means rock or stone, but Peter had learned to stand on the real rock. His name and character were becoming derivative from Jesus, the true rock. He wasn't going to waffle now. The transformation is astonishing. Skip down to verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. What individuated these men? After all, they were unschooled, 
ordinary, unremarkable. The same life that rubbed off on them in their ordinariness can rub off on you in your feeling obscure, insignificant, unexceptional. That mystery factor? As it says, these men had been with Jesus. To discover your true self, that hidden potential to grow into your true name, the person God most especially designed you to be, spend time with Jesus. Listen to his voice. Not the voices of culture or even those negative voices closer to you that have put you down like slowpoke or stupid. Peter was living proof. Next section, the name like no other. And so we come to verse 12, one of the most breathtaking and spectacular claims in all the Bible, one that sets Christians at odds with other cultures and idols still today. It's an exclusive sounding verse, but then other religions make exclusive claims, so that shouldn't rule it out by itself. An exclusive claim is only to be rejected if it is untrue. But if it is true, other exclusive claims that run counter to it are to be rejected. They can't both be true. Someone once challenged Ravi Zacharias about the law of non-contradiction, objecting that it was a so-called Western way of thinking. Uh, the law of non-contradiction maintains if something is true, then the opposite of it is false. For example, if an animal is a cat, the same animal cannot be not a cat. The objector said that in Eastern thinking, two opposite statements can both be true. Ravi, who grew up in India, responded, look, in India, we still look both ways before we cross the street. It's either the bus or me, not both. Back to Peter's exclusive claim that sets theological liberals and universalists' teeth on edge, Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. No one else. No other name. They had crucified Jesus. Their very sin is eliminating and rejecting the singular Savior or Messiah God had sent to deliver sinners from condemnation and hell. It's a singular name. Back up a bit to the end of verse 9, they had asked how he, the lame man, was healed. The Greek verb is sozo, to save, make whole, heal. The name of Jesus is literally Yeshua, Yahweh saves. All Peter's saying is that it's by the name of Jesus, Yeshua, God saves, God heals, that this man stands before you healed, whole. The capacity, the power to save and make whole is branded right into Jesus' very name. There is salvation, healing, wholeness found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved, made whole. It's an exceptional claim, an exclusive claim. One that cannot coexist with the philosophy of many paths up the mountain or the relativism that holds all religions are equally valid. If it works for you, fill your boots, just don't bother me. To suppose that Hinduism or Islam or Christianity can all coexist and be objectively true is an affront to Hinduism 
or Islam just as much as it's an affront to Christianity. All the great religions of the world make exclusive claims. So you better choose wisely. They can't all be true. Look both ways. It's either you or the bus, not both. So Peter stands ready to die as he's there on trial before the very court that condemned his teacher. He knows the ground, the rock upon which he stands. Upon what ground are you standing? Does it supply you with that kind of astonishing, jaw-dropping courage? How do you know? Peter puts it all on the line. In many ways, being a good father requires us to do the same, to be prepared to give it all up. Fathering offers dads an opportunity to disciple their kids at the most intimate level, day in, day out, 24-7. Done well, it reaps tremendous rewards. and can be one of the most fulfilling and rewarding roles in life. The Focus on the Family article is titled, Fathers Encourage Identity Development. It notes, According to psychologist Eric Erickson, childhood development is primarily a process whereby kids gain a sense of personal identity through interaction with other people. It all begins the moment baby comes home from the hospital and dad is one of the earliest and most important players in the drama. Fathers encourage identity development and teach values when they help to shape the hearts and minds of their children. This happens by simply engaging with them and being themselves in their presence. That could lead to a variety of outcomes, of course. It all depends on who dad is and how he conducts himself. But one thing's certain, dads teach values by being present, caring, and involved, who consciously and intentionally strive to live out their commitments, beliefs, and values in front of their kids. If a father does his job well, his children will be drawing upon that strength and goodness of his example for the rest of their lives, end quote. So dads encourage identity development. They help their kids find out who they are, what their real name is. The article says they teach values by being present, caring, and involved. Peter and John had been with Jesus. Good father requires being with our kids, present, caring, and involved. A young man stood before a judge to be sentenced for forgery. The judge had been a friend of the boy's father, who was famous for his books on the law of trusts. The judge said sternly, Young man, do you remember your father, that father whom you have disgraced? The young man answered quietly, I remember him perfectly. When I went to him for advice or companionship, he would say, Run away, boy, I'm busy. Well, my father finished his book. And here I am. Positive example to wrap up. You've probably heard of a certain financial firm called H&R Block. Some time back, Tom Block resigned as chief executive officer of H&R Block, the $1.7 billion tax preparation firm, to become a teacher at St. Francis Xavier Middle School in Kansas City, Missouri. His annual salary suddenly dropped to about 3% of his old salary. But Block knew his hectic schedule as CEO had been interfering with his top priority, his wife and their two sons. He said, the hardest part was telling my father. 
but I didn't want to look back on my life and say, gee, you had an opportunity to play a bigger role in your children's lives and didn't take it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, for granting Peter a filling with your spirit so he could boldly proclaim the truth about Jesus' saving power. Put the name of Jesus upon us so profoundly that we find our identity in you. We know our name because we are resting upon that singular name that saves and makes whole. Help us be done with lesser idols so we may better love and give ourselves to our family and to strangers, whomever we meet, ready to share the goodness we've come to experience in you. In Christ's name, amen.